Before we look into God's Word today, I have the privilege of making an exciting announcement. You're familiar with Pastor Marvin Nelson, part of our staff. He preaches frequently here on our weekends. Well, several years ago, Marvin Hillary began to sense that God had birthed within them a desire to be the lead pastor couple in an alliance church. And that didn't come as any surprise to that. We saw that in Marv's gifting. And so with that announcement, we've spent the last several years behind the scenes mentoring him, trying to give him diverse experiences, inviting him to sit in on elder meetings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to equip him for the moment that that day arrived. Well, several months ago, Marvin Hillary sensed that that time had come, and so he put his name out as a candidate, that's what we call it in the Alliance, for open pastoral positions in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Considered several, but recently felt drawn by the Lord to one in particular, and that congregation felt drawn to Marvin Hillary. So Marv has accepted the pastorate position at the Indiana, Pennsylvania Alliance Church, and will be starting in that role the 1st of May. So in about two weeks, we'll be having Marv here so that you can all join us in commissioning him and praying for him. This is a, an exciting time for him and for Hillary, but it's also an emotional time. They're uprooting from a place where they've been for many years and relocating their family. I believe the Indiana church has a parsonage for them to move into. If not, they'll have to find a home. But lots of challenges for them, but it's an exciting time. We want you to be praying for them. Now, this happening so quickly creates some key decisions for leadership about the future of the ministry Marv was involved in, in light of everything else that's happening at ACAC and expanded influence. In that, as in everything, we just want to seek God and have the mind of God. But do pray for our staff, our leadership, our elders, as we have to make some big decisions in a very short amount of time. Generally, the Spirit leads us over an extended period but when he has to, he can communicate to us quickly. This is one of those moments. So you be praying that we'll be able to discern the mind and the leading of the Lord. Now this weekend, and by the way, we're, we're going to rename the Indiana Alliance Church as Expanded Influence Indiana. <clears throat> this weekend, many congregations will focus on the biblical passages that describe Jesus' entry into Jerusalem just prior to his crucifixion. I'm going to take a different path. I'm going to continue our study of the not-so-minor prophets, and specifically the prophet Micah. And here's why. The events surrounding Jesus' entry into Jerusalem have a lot in common with what was going down in the days of Micah the prophet. In fact, his writing and the events of what we call Palm Sunday taken together remind us of something that will be one of our central points of focus today. When a nation grows tired of God or rejects him altogether, they inevitably reap a twofold harvest, a harvest of injustice and a harvest of ignorance. And while they may readily acknowledge some of the injustice in their culture, they stubbornly 
to refuse to acknowledge the ultimate causes of that injustice. And therein lies the ignorance. And because they refuse to acknowledge ultimate causes, the injustice continues and the victim count escalates. What we now call Palm Sunday was a case in point. Because Palm Sunday was a demonstration of human ignorance reacting to injustice. The people of Israel had long suffered hideous injustice at the hands of Rome. They had been degraded and humiliated. They were impoverished and they were desperate for relief. But in their ignorance, they assumed that that relief would come through a human being through a charismatic leader, through a political outsider who would have the right stuff to lead an armed rebellion against Rome and drain the swamp of religious corruption in Jerusalem. And given his miracles, his charisma, his growing following, his air of authority, Jesus to them appeared to be the right man for the job, for armed insurrection. And that's why we don't hand out palm branches on what is historically called Palm Sunday, because the palm branches that were laid before Jesus were not symbolic of repentance and faith and worship. The palm branch was one of the symbols of the nation of Israel, just as the bald eagle is a symbol of the United States of America. And the cries of Hosanna were not worship. They were essentially shouts of, make Israel great again. So Palm Sunday was not a spiritual breakthrough. What happened shortly thereafter proves that. Palm Sunday was symptomatic of a spiritual breakdown in the culture. It was more political rally than religious revival. And it warns us that when faced with injustice, we're inclined to ask God to serve our solutions rather than save us from our own solutions. And that brings us to Micah. Because centuries earlier, Micah encountered that same inclination. Micah prophesied in a time very much like our own. And as he spoke truth, God's truth, into the mess, he said these familiar words. They're recorded in Micah 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I've entitled today's teaching, The Path to Justice. Now, I know the introduction has been long, but breathe in. We're over 25% of the way home. Now, will you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, I pray that your spirit would help me to do what would be impossible otherwise. Help me as a mere man to declare your eternal truth accurately. It would be presumptuous, arrogant, and foolish for me to ever presume I could do that on my own. 
and help all of us to understand your truth, not just with our intellect, but to know it through the experience of obedience. And as always, I pray these things with confidence because you've revealed your loving heart in the Word. And we pray them for the glory and honor of Christ. And we pray them in his name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice today, may the Lord be with you. You know as well as I do that the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And the striking similarities between Judah in Micah's day and our own nation in this day highlight that reality. Because in Judah, material prosperity over time had birthed selfish materialism. The effort to make life significant and meaningful through the acquisition of material goods. And during the journey, God's inconvenient commands about fair interest rates, sharing, the use of land, compassion, and justice had been forgotten and set aside as impractical. And Judah's politicians had no intention of introducing legislation to return the nation to the ways of God. Because Judah's politicians served their own interests, not the interests of the people. They cared little for the people. They loved and coveted power and wealth. But the most tragic development of all was that the religious leaders in Jerusalem, rather than challenging the spirit of the age, echoed it because it made them popular and it made it possible for them to have a very comfortable lifestyle. And so in Judah, religion had become the servant of materialism. And faith was seen as a way for people to advance their own personal materialistic interests. Sound familiar? To advance their personal materialistic interests rather than advance God's interests for humanity. The result of this was a total breakdown, a moral breakdown, a social breakdown, a growing disparity between a large body of poor and a handful of very wealthy. The courts were corrupt. The judges had been bought off. The politics were corrupt. The political leaders had been bought off. And across the culture, there was a calloused disregard for human suffering. In the face of that mess, God raised up two men primarily, Isaiah and Micah, to speak his truth and stern warnings to the culture that had forgotten him and created all of this injustice. And embedded in his warnings were these words from Micah. They're a rhetorical question. What does the Lord require of you? Now, few questions in Scripture are more important than that one. What does the Lord require of you? You can read it about four different ways, putting the emphasis in a different place each time. What does the Lord require of you? Because the one asking the question is important. What does the Lord require of you? It's not a hint 
It's not a suggestion. It's a command. What does the Lord require of you? You can't just hand it to the person next to you. It's direct to you personally. But that question reminds us of something we often choose to forget. But I'd remind you, forgetting reality doesn't change reality. And the reality is, we are accountable to God. One day, He will appraise our life. Every one of us in this room will one day stand before a just, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God for an all-encompassing evaluation of our life. There won't be any no-shows. Nobody will arrive late because of traffic on the parkway. And we won't be able to protest, God, I would have lived my life differently if I had known what was on the final exam. Because God always reveals what he requires. Always. He never keeps us in the dark. The problem people have with Scripture is not that it's vague. They have problems with Scripture because it's specific. Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of Scripture I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I understand all too well. You see, in Scripture, God has given us a study guide, and he's told us the questions on the final exam ahead of time. Why? Because he wants us to pass. But in addition to that, as we pass through life, he wants us to add to the momentum of justice and thereby discover abundance and joy ourselves. So Micah's rhetorical question was similar to Jesus' famous rhetorical question. What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Both of those questions were meant to shape our journey, order our priorities, prepare us for the final, and introduce us to joy and meaning. Now, as Micah spoke to the nation, he leveled an accusation against them. He said, you folks have grown tired of God. I've been in some worship services where people appear to be tired of God because they mumble their way through, unlike the way they conduct themselves at a Steeler game. And the allegation, you people have grown tired of God, must have blown them away, and I'm sure they rebutted it with passion. Hey, you can't say that about us. We're the people of God. We're the ones, unlike the pagan neighbors, we're the ones that gather every week in this splendid temple for worship. Our praise band just cut their third album. They're out touring right now. But the charge stood. And Micah brought that accusation on God's behalf because Judah had substituted external rituals of worship for obedience and compassion, a behavior pattern as old as Cain in the book of Genesis. You see, the temptation to offer worship as a substitute for justice is always with us. There are a host of reasons for it. I suspect one is that we all prefer the path of least resistance. I've never prayed, God, however I get from here to where you want me, make it the hardest road possible. (laughs) 
No, we want the path of least resistance. And let's be frank, shouting on Sunday isn't nearly as demanding as pursuing justice on Monday. But God's not so concerned with how high you jump in worship. He's concerned with, do you walk straight when you land? And if we fail to pursue justice in the midst of our corporate worship, it's an indicator that we have grown tired of God. Because you can't value God without valuing what God values. And God values justice. So Micah reminds Judah that devotion to God calls for both worship and doing justice. It's not a pick one. Because they inform one another, empower one another, and sustain one another. Neither will survive alone. You can't stay deeply involved with God the way God wants you to if you don't stay deeply involved with people. And you can't stay deeply involved with people the way God wants you to if you don't stay deeply involved with God. If we focus on worship and the gospel but neglect justice, we will forfeit God's power and we will lose our credibility and our witness before a watching world. And too much of that has happened in America's churches. But if, on the other hand, we focus on justice but neglect worship and the gospel, we will also forfeit God's power and we will lose the message that the world desperately needs to hear. Either option is unacceptable. Both options are unjust because the first robs humanity of compassion and the second robs them of salvation. We should never preach the gospel without addressing hunger in the recipient. But we should never feed the hungry without feeding their souls with the gospel. It's both and. And if you assume either one, you've probably already started on your way to losing that aspect. So in the face of epidemic injustice, Micah called Judah to get things right, to return to God by doing three things. And the first doing justice. Now notice, he didn't say preach about justice, tweet about justice, post about justice, write about justice, sing about justice, make banners about justice, wear t-shirts promoting justice, or demonstrate for justice. All of those things are fine. All of them have their place. All of them can contribute to the cause. But Micah said, do justice. And doing justice requires a grasp of what justice entails. Justice is a word of social preservation involving two things, attack and addition. So to do justice, we have to attack those things that destroy the fabric of a community. Things like bigotry, poverty, hunger, corruption, unemployment, unfair wages, poor education, poor health care, and a host of other ills that rob people of opportunity and hope. And while we don't tell you about it every week, we as a ministry have our hands in virtually every one of those. But doing justice also means we add things that bring God's shalom to a community. Things like, first and foremost, a revelation of God. Second, his salvation. And then, education, fair lending, 
health care, good housing, job training, legal aid, employment, counsel, financial assistance. So in light of that twofold meaning, to do justice is to engage in compassionate social action that is aimed at correcting inequities, creating opportunities, and alleviating suffering in Jesus' name. Now, the second thing is linked to the first. You can't separate them. We're called to love kindness. To love kindness is one of those expressions that can become a warm fuzzy. Warm, but totally devoid of any practical meaning. Oh, yeah, we're to love kindness. What's that mean? Oh, we're to love kindness. We're to be kind. What does that mean? To love kindness is to accept responsibility for other people with the love that won't let go. You see, it's a Hebrew covenant term. Micah's audience would have understood that. It means you bind yourself to God and God's interests and God's cause, and you stay there no matter the cost. It means kindness becomes your permanent address, not just a place you visit a couple times a year so that you can return to your comfortable life free of guilt. Living on the north side, I see a lot of what I call drive-by compassion. Peek in, hand out a few things, reminding the have-nots that they have not, and then go back home and feel like you've changed the world. That's not loving kindness. That's fooling yourself. It doesn't change anything. And trust me, I've heard from the recipients. They know it doesn't change anything. And loving kindness is necessary because for a whole host of reasons, when you seek to bless those who have been victimized, they won't always cooperate with you. They won't always appreciate you. They won't always interpret your motivation correctly, and they won't always supply your efforts. But God will. You say, why wouldn't they? Well, suffering people inevitably do what we all do when we suffer. They build walls of protection around themselves to limit future suffering. You're not going to scale those walls easily. But if you'll scale them, you'll find Jesus is right there with you. The third command protects us from that thing that will poison any effort at seeking and doing justice. Pride. See, Satan is happy to see people pursue justice if their motivation is pride. Because while they're closing one door to his activity, they are kicking wide open another door. And Spend a little time on social media, you'll see what I'm talking about. Because some of those who are all about justice spend half their time vilifying and denigrating anybody who doesn't agree with how they're going about it. Calling them kind of things I can't say from the pulpit but do on occasion. (laughs) But look at self-control day. I thought it, but I didn't say it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and there is this arrogance 
If you don't see things, if you aren't going about it like you are, you should just die. You should just go away. You are an idiot. You are uneducated. Satan loves that. Because the pride poisons everything. It creates new strongholds for principalities and powers. The third thing is humility. It's a word of accurate perspective. It doesn't mean you put yourself down. That's usually just insecurity or reverse pride. Humility means you see things as they really are. To be humble is to see God as he is and see yourself as you are and to see both accurately. That's humility. You know you're not God, and you know God's not you. And when you're walking in humility, you recognize you don't have all the answers. You recognize you aren't superior to the people you're trying to help. You realize that apart from God's grace and some good fortune that you had nothing to do with, you could easily be numbered among the victims of injustice. You recognize that some of those who are suffering work harder than you and are more responsible than you. Their their difficult situation is not an indictment on their character. And if you have yourself been a victim in justice, humility reminds you that being a victim doesn't make you godlier and more spiritual than other people. Because I've seen that dynamic too. I've been victimized. I'm closer to God. Now, the, the, the second doesn't follow the first. Remember, Judah was beset with injustice because they had grown tired of God and rejected him. Humility means we recognize that pride is the enemy of everything God wants to do in the world, no matter where it bunks for the night. Here's something a lot of people don't realize. If you'll do justice in humility, not only will it increase justice, it will increase your humility. They feed on one another. Because when you do justice, it pulls you out of isolation. It puts you in contact with the victims of injustice. And as you befriend them and hear their stories, it increases your sensitivity to the pervasive scope of injustice, the depth of injustice, and the hideous pains of injustice. But here's something else the contacts do. They birth the uncomfortable recognition that there are points at which you may have benefited from injustice in this culture, even though that wasn't your desire. And that recognition births humility. I was born Caucasian and middle class. That gave me a whole list of advantages that many of my brothers and sisters have never enjoyed and may never enjoy. Now, I find when I say that to Caucasian people, they get their undies in a wad. (laughs) I'm not going to bat a thousand. Because they feel you're suggesting they didn't work hard for things, that everything was handed to them. No. You had to work hard, but you had the chance to. And as you did, you didn't run into barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier. 
I'll never forget in one of my first years here, one of our elders who was African-American sat in my office in tears. He had just been to a job interview, and because he was black and raised on the north side, the first question that was asked of him, how have you managed to stay out of jail this long? I never had to deal with that. If you're white, you never had to deal with that kind of garbage. But some people deal with it every day that they live. And if you get out of isolation, it opens your eyes, and then God can increase your humility. Now, sadly, whenever you talk about injustice, disparities, the poor, somebody will say, oh, you've got to be careful. That's divisive. It's not divisive. It's biblical. Micah made that clear. So did Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, to know God is to plead the cause of the needy. Think if the final exam is an essay. And here's the question. What did you do to plead the cause of the needy and thereby show that you knew God? I always hated essay questions. <laughs> Give me true false. I got half a chance. Okay. What if that's the question on the final exam? David said, the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Proverbs says, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. Be real careful about making sweeping indictments on them. You might just be reproaching God. I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the book. It says the righteous are concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked, the wicked don't understand that concern. There, there's a challenging barometer. See, talk of injustice only divides those who are proud, fearful, defensive, and undiscerning. But if you're walking in humility, the only things it will divide you from are ignorance, pride, apathy, and selfishness. And we need to be divided from those things. Doesn't the Bible say that the Word of God is a sharp sword that divides? It shows the difference between kingdom and crap. And too often the crap poses as kingdom. Now, as Micah spoke, his chief opposition came from false prophets false pastors who made a cushy living telling people what they wanted to hear. Because they told the people of Judah, God loves you. And he wants you to see all your dreams fulfilled. He wants you to have that home. He wants you to have that car. He wants you to have that successful business. He wants all of your dreams to come true because he loves you. He would never speak harshly to you. And then they brought accusations against Micah. Micah, you're misrepresenting God. You make God look harsh. You make him look narrow. You make him look judgmental. You make him look phobic. You make him look repulsive. A loving God would never harp on sin and judgment. Go away, Micah. And what did Micah say to that? He said, the reason I speak courageously to sin and judgment is because the Spirit of God has empowered me. As I've shared all throughout this series, any church 
that doesn't speak to the sin that is a blight upon the human condition is not only betraying humanity, it is betraying God. Because the failure to speak truth to a society mired in injustice and ignorance increases the ignorance and increases the injustice and makes the church complicit in the erosion of the culture. So cultures that grow tired of God or reject him altogether reap a harvest of injustice and ignorance. As Chesterton said, they mock virtue and then they're shocked to find thieves in their midst. And if I could build upon what he said, they peddle sex 24-7, pouring it into our living rooms and our computers and the hearts and minds of our children, and then they are shocked that there are sexual predators in our midst. They make a fortune objectifying women, portraying themselves as sex objects to bring in the coin, and then they are shocked that there are men who don't show proper respect to women. They manufacture video games and movies for our impressionable youth that are all about violence and blowing away zombies and killing people and beheading people, and then they are shocked that we have violence in our schools. And the very people who perpetuate these things stand before us and preach to us while they accuse the church of being preachy. They just have a bigger pulpit. When you mock virtue, you will have thieves in your midst. Refusing God's truth, they sink ever deeper into the quicksand of arrogance. And their only hope is the people of God among them who will walk the path of justice. That's why Paul echoed Micah. He wanted to keep it alive. In Colossians 3.12, he said, As those who have been chosen of God, holy and loved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and humility. I always close these messages talking about the intersection of faith and culture, what the culture says at the intersection, what Jesus says at the intersection. When you stand at that intersection, the culture says the path to justice will lead through getting rid of the notion of God and fixing things ourselves. Jesus says you have the injustice because you have gotten rid of God and tried to fix things yourself. And the answer is those who will walk the path of justice with him. Let's pray together. Father, it's not easy being a believer in this broken culture. What we believe is mocked, insulted, denigrated, and there are many who would like to see us silenced. But that's not new. We're not the first, we won't be the last. This is not child's play, this is life or death. In the midst of that, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to love you passionately and pursue justice passionately, knowing that they feed off one another, they're the two sides of the same coin, 
and that people who do that represent the only hope for a culture awash in injustice and ignorance. Help us to be part of the solution, not through poisoned rhetoric, but through valid expression of the kingdom of God. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Before Pastor Glenn comes to close the service and make a general mess of things, uh, I just have to make sure he's paying attention. In each of our services this weekend, uh, we're praying for those who are going to be a part of our Homestead Church plant. They launch next Sunday. Easter Sunday, great day to launch a new church. So if you're in this service and plan to be a part of that core group that will start that church, would you stand right now? Anybody who's got to be a part of that group, if you would stand. And now, if you're near to some of these who are standing, will you stand and lay hands on them? Not to take their wallet, but to... To just represent the body of Christ reaching out to them. They're about, about to be a part of something very exciting. And the pastor and his wife, Sheldon and Faye, are right here near the front. Now join your hearts with mine as we pray for them. Father, what an exciting thing. We get excited over the birth of a new child, as we should. We get excited over the birth of some new initiative filled with promise, as we should. And Lord, we're excited about the birth of a new congregation in a city beset with great human need and human suffering. Lord, as that is launched next weekend, we know that Satan will be there for the very first service. And we pray that you would rebuke him and bind him for anything he would attempt. We know the Holy Spirit will be there, and we pray that his voice would be heard loudly, clearly, and that this congregation would sense spirit momentum from the very first word of that first service. And we pray from a small and humble beginning that it will grow to be a kingdom outpost, offering help, hope, healing, justice, love, forgiveness, unity in a broken and an arrogant culture. We pray that many will find their way out of darkness and into light through this kingdom outpost and that no weapon formed against them would prosper. So we set them aside, ask for fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit on every one of them. Let this be the beginning of something awesome, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's affirm those who are going to be a part.